Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. I'm Rebecca Rothstein, and along with my co-host, Leanne Daly, we'd like to welcome you to Say It Forward. Each week, we'll be doing one of my favorite things to do, and that's interviewing interesting people with out-of-the-ordinary life stories. They're all people who took a different path in life. Some never imagined the heights they would achieve, and others, well, they turned their childhood dreams into reality. So let's begin. Today, we continue with part two of our interview with Jerry Casale, co-founder of the rock band Devo. In part one, Jerry talked to us about founding Devo and the fascinating stories on their journey to success, his personal experience at Kent State during the riots, his pivot into a successful music video and commercial directing career, and the long road to getting married. Now, in part two of the interview, Jerry shares his life after Devo, his love of food and wine, and how he was at the forefront of a food revolution that began in California. We'll find out how Jerry learned about wine, winemaking, and starting his own wine label, the 50 by 50 in Napa Valley. You know, I realized that I've eaten pizzas that you made (laughs) at Michael and Kim McCarty's house a couple Labor Days ago. That's true. I love that. Yeah, Michael McCarty set me down that wine and food path that you can't return from. Uh, (laughs) It all happened in April of 79 because I had moved out here in June of 78 found an apartment on San Vicente Boulevard in Santa Monica. And I just thought it was great because um, nobody wanted to be out there. Everybody thought it was the dumbest thing I could have done. Like, that's a loser retirement community. There's no action. And I go, yeah, but it's it's beautiful and it's <laughs> always cool and I can walk to the ocean. And to me, it was the antidote to, you know, Ohio right. and being landlocked and flatlander. And I left my apartment one night to walk into the little city of Santa Monica, which it was then. And I I turned south and went down Third Street. And there was this house near the corner of Wilshire and Third that was all lit up, looked like a restaurant. <laughs> and nobody was in it. And it was April. And it was Michael McCarty's, Michael's restaurant. He'd been open like two weeks. Oh, my gosh. And Very beginning. He was super skinny and, you know, dressed really nice wire rim glasses, long hair, and he goes, may I help you? And uh, (laughs) I go, what's going on here? And he sat me down, showed me the menu, and asked me what I did. And I told him I moved out here, you know, because of uh, getting a a record deal with Warner Brothers Records, and I was Devo. He goes, you're Devo? And he he knew Devo, and he loved Devo already. And he started bringing me dishes to sample, because there was nobody in there. Well, within two or three months, you couldn't get in. Yeah. And he also started turning me on to California wines because he was promoting early on when everybody would only have French wine. He had all the great producers from Northern California. And so there I am learning about food and wine because, you know, I grew up eating horrible stuff like most blue-collar kids. Right, and drinking Matus or Ripple well, or something, right? Well, if I tasted wine, I hated it. i go, why do people like this? You know, wine was Mogan David. Cheese was Velveeta. You know, my mother would use canned vegetables, you know, macaroni and cheese, rump roasts that were burned to, think, to a yeah, crisp. Yeah, gray, gray rump roasts. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So this was a revelation and it just was an awakening. And it was gr- perfect timing because what I didn't realize at the time is this was expensive. <laughs> but 
you know, I I was newly minted with some money, right? So it didn't seem expensive. It was okay. And I, you know, I didn't have a family. So there I was learning about wine and food and it just mushroomed from there because of Michael and the chef community that was all very fraternal at that time. Yeah. Wolfgang Puck, Bruce Martyr. I, I met them all, right? And, and, and that place had like a who's who of chefs. Oh my God, through. go through it. Yeah. All the chefs that passed through Michael ended up being moguls, like yeah, yeah. Um, you Jonathan must Waxman. You thirties, right? I was thirty. And him, how old was he? Same. Michael. Oh no, Michael McCarty's like six years younger than me. Oh, so he was. He was. A, <laughs> yeah, he had yeah. just come back from France. being a student in the Cordon Bleu in yeah. France, well, right? Yeah. So you know, my interest went from just being a gleeful consumer, right? Like, <laughs> yum yum yum, eat them up. Uh, and then same with wine, like going, oh, yeah, I like that one. But I had no idea how things were done or what artists these chefs and winemakers were. Like it didn't dawn on me. You know, I didn't reflect on it. And I was just, you know, an avid consumer of wow. good stuff. And then it started to change. It started to change even in the uh, mid-'80s where I started asking questions and watching and hanging out at their houses when they'd have dinner parties and seeing how things get done. And then I started talking to Michael Samalier about, you know, Phil Reich about how wine's made. And I started like really becoming knowledgeable and sampling all the wines of the world that are any good. And I always, you know, what a treat. Always envied the lifestyle yeah. of people that were making wine because we'd, we'd be on tour and promoters would go, hey, Jerry, do you want to – or Devo really. Like do you want to visit this vineyard, this villa? You know, we'd be in Italy. And no, they wanted to go shopping. But I'd go, yeah, I do. And we'd go out, you know, just outside of Florence. And there we are in Tuscany at this villa. It was Castello di Ama. Oh, my and, God. And had their own little <laughs> restaurant there. That's and amazing. Guys bringing wines from his library selections and – my mind was blown. I, you know, I wanted to do that. I, just, this is the way I want to live, and I never got to, of course. And it, it was always just remained a, a dream or an idea. And then finally, about six years ago, seven years ago, you know, I was uh, uh, involved in some real estate with this restoration architect who's pretty renowned at restoring mid-century modern architecture, like Neutra, Schindler, Mies, Van der Rohe. And he bought a piece of property in Napa, and it's right next to Kenzo Vineyards. And, you know, it's beautiful for planting Cabernet. But in the meantime, he goes, do you want to start a wine label? I go, I sure do. Wow. And I started with my first love, which is Pinot Noir. And I sourced Pinot Noir from Sonoma because you don't grow good Pinot Noir in Napa Valley. It just doesn't work. Why? Just something about the climate and the soil. It's too far from the ocean. It's too landlocked, too hot. Soil's much better for Cabernet, the composition of the soil. But, you know, Russian River Valley and Sonoma Coast in California produce some fantastic Pinot Noirs. And, you know, where I get my fruit from is a single vineyard. They're only growers. They don't make wine. And it's called Rogers Creek, and it's in the Petaluma Gap. It's um, got a nice location on a slope mm -hmm. at, with the right angle to the ocean so it gets Cool at night, lots of fog, gets nice and hot during the day but cools off. You know, it's somewhat volcanic soil there and about a 9% slope so you get a lot of drainage off the roots. So you get really stressed vines, which mm -hmm. is what you want for Pinot. And the yield is very nice and the, 
the fruit is beautiful. Oh my God, this sounds so, so sexy. I want to drink some wine, and it's way <laughs> yeah. too early in the morning for that. Yeah. So, how did you find the person to collaborate with to create the wine? You know, because of all my visits up north to wineries and stuff, I'd made some friends, and I was directed to talk to this winemaker, Ken Vigoda, who had worked at Raymond Vineyards for 25 years. And, uh, he was making wine in a barn on the Silverado Trail and making small batches for boutique producers like I was becoming. And I, I needed a technician and, you know, a numbers guy, somebody that's looking at all the chemistry of, of the grapes, you know, running labs and has mm-hmm. the equipment because I didn't have the equipment. So I collaborated with him and then he retired and turned me on to this guy, Eric Lyman, who's much younger. And uh, that's been good because he's – more enthusiastic because he's trying to, you know, make, make the name. best possible wine he can. He's not right. jaded at all. So I've been working with him, but I still just have a small, you know, 400 case production. But I make rosé of Pinot Noir as well because I Ooh. love rosé of Pinot Noir, which I will bring you. You're, you're going to oh, love this. I love it. And this year yeah, I'm starting to make love those wines. white Pinot Noir. Wow. Ooh, intriguing. I don't think I've ever had a white Pinot Noir. I had never had any until I tasted uh, white Pinot Noir from Domaine Serene in Willamette Valley. And then I found out who the winemaker was at the time who made the white Pinot Noir. And uh, I talked to him in Portland, and he gave me all the tips on how to get started there. I know this is a uh, business question, but do you make money in this business? Or is this a labor of love? <laughs> no, I, I am... <laughs> I'm in the hole. <laughs> it's like yeah, a labor I'm in the love, hole. Right? You know, the, all the, the the cliched joke about the wine business, right? How do you make a fortune in the wine business? You spend 10 times that fortune. Yeah, it's <laughs> yeah. like owning a boat in a way. Yeah, because, you know, unless you can increase demand and production and amortize costs across a, a, a greater number of bottles, the numbers don't work out. There's no profit margin when you're where I'm at. This is about establishing quality and the brand credibility and getting it everywhere I can get personally. You know, I hand deliver this stuff to top restaurants and wine shops and, you know. What is the name of the label? The 50 by 50. And the reason for that name is that, again, this this restoration architect is building a Mies van der Rohe design that Mies designed in 1950 that never got – he never got a commission. So what it is is Mies designed this glass house. It's got – it's 50 feet by 50 feet. It's all glass exterior walls with a um, wood veneer core and you move around the house in a circle and the divisions of rooms – come only partially towards the the glass so that it's like walking into a partitioned gallery space for each of the rooms. And, and the light penetrates through everywhere. the and the sides and everything. Everywhere. It's just each panel of glass is 25 feet long and 10 feet high. It's double-tempered, insanely thick glass uh, forged in China because nobody in America makes it anymore. When Mies designed it, there was a company – in Chicago, right, you know, locally that was going to do it. But, you know, things have, well, you know where manufacturing's gone yeah. in America. Mm-hmm. So that's, it, the, the, that's the home of the vineyard? That's where we're planning Cabernet. And that's where you'll come to the 50 by 50 house and taste any 50 by 50 wine that's produced and distributed. And what town is it in? It's in Napa up Monticello Road. Silverado Trail comes down and meets Monticello Road just north of the old town of Napa, which I love that sleepy old town. And now finally, it's being roused yeah. and descended upon. You know, it was the land that time forgot for a long I've time. I've never been there. Oh, it's so... I've never been there. You know, everybody wanted to go, go. To, to Yountville and yeah. 
Helena and St. Helena and, and Calistoga and Oakville. They never wanted to go into the old town of Napa because it was the sleepy town, right, that stayed the same as in the 60s, which I thought was great. But yeah. now forget it. Yeah, <laughs> that's too bad. <laughs> so the people that come to visit will have an architectural experience, experience yeah. and have a fantastic wine experience. That's the idea. Like, that's fantastic. That's the idea. Super cool. And, and the story is on the website plus pictures of the construction. And because of cyber squatters, we couldn't get the numbers, the 50by50.com because somebody sat on it and wanted – obscene amounts of money. So we had to use all letters, the50by50.com, all letters. Okay. So T-H-E-F-I-F-T-Y-B-Y-F-I-F-T-Y dot com. All, yeah. Great. I think it's cool. kind of nice that way, actually. You know, it takes yeah, it a little longer okay. to type it's it up. It's once century type- <laughs> Yeah, once you've typed it out yeah, once, it you know, okay. it's good. That's yeah. so exciting. Yeah. How much of your time do you spend doing this? More and more. I mean... <laughs> That's the other thing, you know, um, in like a lion, out like a lamb. I mean, I thought I knew more than I knew. And you're thinking, look, I got the right blocks and rows under contract here for my Pinot Noir fruit. I got the right clones. You know, I use only two Dijon 667 and Pomard. Those are my favorite clones after <laughs> tasting everything. It's so technical, right? Oh, it is. It's like farming and artistry and alchemy, luck. Right. And And you're really at the mercy of nature. And of course, with the reality of global warming, I know that the harvests are now occurring a month earlier than they ever did for the previous century, right? And so your grapes are ripening too fast, but the bricks, which is the measures of the sugars in the in in the juice of the grape, you know, demand that you pick and you know you harvest and process and crush because if you waited. You're making dessert wine. So sometimes your yield isn't good or the grapes are not plump enough, not big enough. But you have to go because the labs are telling you go. Yeah. So the harvest was a September harvest and now it's earlier or was it October? It was in October. Okay. All it used to be October. Yeah. You know, and now People have big um, you're lucky. picking parties. Well, yeah, and you're lucky. Yeah, and you're lucky if you get to the middle of September. Now people think that's a win. I got a gift of a bottle of Chateau Yakim about 25 years ago, and when I got that bottle, it was like 50 years old. Yeah, and so wow. I have it. I th- I hope that I've stored it correctly. What vintage is it? I don't. You remember. don't remember? Because well, it, it really depends. I mean, there's a chance it's still drinking. You know, well, my plan was to always open it when I had my first grandchild and to share it with my family. So it's taking a little longer than I had expected. Chateau de Chem doesn't last forever. No, they said no. Nothing lasts forever, but those wines last the longest. Yeah, in the Wine Spectator, they ranked it and said, you know, that that they can last into the hundreds of years if you store them correctly. Yeah, if they're stored correctly and if they're a good vintage, which is very funny. It's like the worse for the vintage for regular wines, the better for dessert wines like Chateau Giacam. I love them. I love them. <laughs> well, yeah. Do you like, do you like uh, Canadian ice wine? Have you had yes, the ones from St. Catharines, yeah. Ontario? There's some tremendous Yeah, there's ones. some really good ones. When I go out to drink wine, I much prefer the kind of wine that you were making. <laughs> um, and you're, the one that you left here was so delicious. I love that kind of wine. Uh, my husband doesn't drink wine, so he tastes it. He goes, oh, that's good. But he doesn't really know. When you taste your wine, it's so delicious. Well, I make wine that's it's reflecting my taste. After drinking all my way around the world and drinking <laughs> the big, you know, Bordeaux's and the big Cabernets from California and the Barolos and Barbarescos and Brunellos from Italy and, and so on, I settled after years and years on Pinot Noir. And of course, if I 
had a lot of money, I'd just be drinking the great Pinot Noirs of Burgundy, France. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah. But, you know, we, we are <laughs> coming up in the world. I mean, California and, and Oregon Pinot Noir is getting really good. And I make that French style of balanced, elegant wine where the fruit's a little suppressed in balance with the acid. Grapes aren't overripe. And, you know, there's. Killing a, me over here. Well, there's I want a, a certain. Yeah. <laughs> you know, my favorite Pinots are always the ones that are a little translucent, where mm-hmm. if you hold them up to a candlelight, you get that beautiful Claret. glow through them. Yeah, and yes. Glow. The yeah, glow. they're like glass. Yes. Right? And I like it to. I do it to match with food. I never just sit down and drink a bottle of wine. No. Um, it's oh, always about the pairing. I have a glass of wine when I come home and well, I'm okay. cooking dinner in the yeah, kitchen. I, I open up. Yeah. And unfortunately, over the years, my tastes become more and more and more expensive. Yeah. <laughs> and so That's what I'll happens. open up a lovely, you know, something that I bought. But I definitely have a California palate. Okay. And, um, well, yeah, we all do, I think. Yeah. yeah. And it's and I love it. I love having my glass of wine. I force myself on occasion to drink sake, too. <laughs> Which I also quite like. Although well, I haven't been able to distinguish in sakis um, what kind of sake I like. Like I know what mm. kind of reds I like, but I don't know Japanese wines. Well, yeah. I mean we, we didn't grow other... up with sake. But yeah, I mean to the Japanese, it's got as many permutations as oh, wine. Oh, yeah. You go to some of these fancy restaurants like Nobu where they have their wine list and their sake sure. list and they've got you know 50 different sakes right, on exactly. it. I have no idea. I say, could I have a large hot carafe, please? And that's about the most I, I prefer – and just like in wine, I guess, I prefer the drier, like more floral dry sakis that are like kind of almost aromatic. How uh, much of your time do you spend on your wines? Well, you know, I should really live up there. Uh, you know, I should live up in Napa. I keep going back and forth and that gets expensive. I've done both. There's a no-win situation these days. I mean, you know, my God, everything is devolving for real. And you're trying to drive is is frustrating because you're not going to get anywhere. You're just in traffic. Trying to fly is hideous. They've, they, they've turned that into a punishment where it's like <laughs> going into a minimum security prison to go to the airport. It's yeah. a hostage situation. You know, and if you you got to get there so early and then the planes hardly ever take off on time. Then when you get to the other end, you got to rent the car. In the end, it's Almost maybe a two-hour advantage to fly than to yeah, drive. That's it. But that's it. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. stupid. So, what else do you do besides your wines and your personal life? Now, what do you? How do you spend your time? Um, you know, um, trying to do projects. I mean, I've been working on a uh, on a series documentary on the California food revolution that I lived through, mm-hmm. and I know all the players because before. Alice Waters and Wolfgang Puck and Michael McCarty and Jeremiah Tower. And, you know, it was the Mad Men era, right? Basically, people were still eating like you would Steak see in Mad Men. Potato. Well, yeah, and just drinking, big hunks of overcooked meat, meat right. iceberg lettuce salads, uh, cottage cheese. Overcooked broccoli. Oh, God, yeah, cottage. You're right. Cottage cheese Cottage and melon. cheese. Ooh. And then, you know, mostly cocktails. If it was wine, only the rich people were drinking like super expensive French wines, you know, from the big – houses there. That's the way it was. And then on on the middle class, working class level, it was fast food and frozen food. So there was no infrastructure and no knowledge about produce, uh, local producers of, of fruit or vegetables or meats of any kind. You know, it was all horrible. What a wonderful idea for a documentary. Yeah. And I just wanted to show the explosion, alive. you know. Yeah. All the, the and they're all alive, so you have to do this now because they're That's all right, alive. That's right, because most of them are alive. It's incredible because it just took like three years' time. Everything changed. So like 79 to yeah. 83. Basically. Yeah, that was the first yeah. wave where – because there was no infrastructure, right? 
these guys partnered up with local people in California raising ducks or mm-hmm. pigs, right, <laughs> and and made deals with them. And um, they started championing the vineyards in Northern California and doing seasonal menus with fresh ingredients and taking all the heavy sauces out of things and using a lot of grilling techniques and, and opening up the kitchens and making it less formal and more of a social scene. And it all changed. So when you look at like Sardis and Brown Derby and everything, that kept going all the way up into the mid-70s. You know, and other than the encroachment of like hippie natural food stuff right. like the source in L.A., you know, where suddenly people were eating sprouts and yeah. – and avocado and hummus. Yod. <laughs> yeah. So funny. My sister has um, three children that she lives in Toronto. She raised these three children and now they all have moved to California. And I cook nonstop. I'm always in the kitchen. And I make them dinner. They sit at my kitchen counter and I make them salads and, you know, grilled broccolis and Brussels sprouts and sweet potatoes, you name it. Yeah. They always push the vegetables to the side. And I said to them, what is what are you guys doing? Like, hello, eat your vegetables. Oh, we don't eat vegetables. Well, what kind of vegetables did you grow up with? And my sister repeated what my mother used to cook were cans of peas, cans of corn, you know, cans of baked beans. And so nothing was fresh because you went, you, they didn't have access like we do. You walk into a supermarket anywhere in California and it is robust with vegetables. I know. And fruits. and I know. Yeah, and we, everything is fresh and everything's delicious and yeah, just a I million know. different kinds of tomatoes. It's incredible. California is like Italy. It, it's We should be our own country. Yeah, we should. There is yeah. an embarrassment of riches. And this is why the food revolution started here yeah. because we had it all. And we could suddenly champion the idea that we're eating every day. We have to eat. Let's make it good. Yeah. <laughs> and let's use what's here. Did you come across Nancy Silverton and your Of course, yeah. So Nancy, I was telling this to Leanne earlier today. My kids grew up with her kids when they were little. And she opened this restaurant and this bakery. And (laughs) I thought, oh, my God, you know, how is she going to survive with that kind of thing? And who knew? You knew. But it exploded when they opened. It was incredible. You know, that La Brea bakery was so ahead of its time. The line was at the door, wrapped around the block. And it was new and fresh. I mean, now you wouldn't think twice about going to a exactly there's everything so they did really set the trend so yeah they, you they really did they created some they created some industry that didn't exist and they changed the face of the way people eat today yeah. that's right and then the next wave became celebrity chefs because there were suddenly cookbooks tv shows infrastructure nationally for mm-hmm. you know organic produce small farm raised cattle and ducks and Pigs and yeah, and then when the internet came in and made commerce possible digitally, that exactly. helped even more. So, and so we're, we're in that moment. It's right mainstream. Now. Yeah. I went to um, uh, Wolfgang must have opened Spago. You you probably know this eighty one in eighty one. And you go there today, and every time you walk in the door there, and this is now you know let's call you this see forty him. years later. <laughs> you see him. You no. see him. Yeah, great food, constantly changing, never gets stale. Lines out the door. This is an almost forty-year location, yeah. right? He's incredible, and it's inc- yeah, it's amazing. And so they keep it fresh. And yeah, they reopened in what two thousand twelve or thirteen, right? Yeah, they were only closed for a short <sighs> time for the remodel. Well, yeah, they you know they had to move out of that space across from what used to be Tower Records on right. Sunset, yeah. where the whole history was made. And as a matter of fact, part of this documentary, Michael McCarty commissioned a director producer named Paul Gurian back. I know Gurian. In 83. I know Gurian. Uh, 
to shoot this huge event at the um, Stanford Court Hotel in San Francisco where they brought all the top chefs in, all the names we've been talking about, each to cook a course and match with a different California wine. And it coincided with the opening of the American Institute of Wine and Food. So everybody was there. All all the luminaries were there. And Julia Childs was there and um, Mr. Beard, James, James Beard. Beard. And Gurian shot it all. You interviewed him. They're on camera talking. You see him cooking. There's a couple hours worth of footage, including a party at the original Spago. Wow. That's unbelievable. That's so cool. I bet. And Just, so will you will that go into yeah, your documentary? Yeah. That's great. That's yeah, terrific. That archival stuff. I met Gurian in the wine aisle at Gelson's and he explained to me that one of the wines I was looking at was the wine that they drink at the Vatican and it went from there. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, he is uh, He's a character. He is a real character, real eccentric and he and his knowledge was vast. Vast. He began drinking wine he said when he was about 13 years old yeah. with his grandfather or yeah. something in France, yes. I think. Yeah, he has child. a storied past. I mean, he produced really quirky films yeah. too, like Bernice um, Bob's or Hair, Cutter and Bone, and uh, <laughs> Peggy Sue Got Married. Yeah. And I remember that Peggy Sue Got Married. Yeah, movie. yeah. and That's Julia so Child. Crazy. When I I I think that she. Correct me if I'm wrong, but she's even older than this group of people, right? No, she's passed away yes. now, but she was sort of the precursor that led she to was, it. but she really embraced what was happening. She knew it was great. Yeah. Wow. And then she became – I think that just by sheer force of her her will and the fact that her husband was in communications for the State Department, they were able to create a media brand for her. That's so and, cool. Uh, and Alice is such an interesting story, Alice Waters, because she's very opinionated, but she was very hesitant. She demurred from a lot of potential opportunities early on. It was only recently that she's become much more mm-hmm. kind of vocal. You're talking about things like Wolfgang did making pizzas and spices. And yeah, becoming d- a- expanding in that commercial mm-hmm. kind of a way. She really was more engaged in um, community-based agriculture and edible schoolyards and things like that. Oh. It was still very grassroots. Yeah. I also think that the the advent of sort of the coffee culture yeah. created more of a sort of discernment, if you will, that, that made more people like recognize that there was a difference between a good bottle of wine and a bad bottle of wine, a good cup of coffee and a bad cup of coffee. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's changed so greatly. Yeah. You can't get away with making. Now, when you look back on your life, what are your sort of, you know, what do you think? I mean, you've had an extraordinary uh, life. Everything I, that you've said, I realized yeah. that <laughs> I realized that I didn't know the half of it. I I think what I lived through was de-evolution in in reality, it's like as a, as a case in point. Right? Yeah. I've experienced it and been part of it. You know, there's no doubt about That's it. It's an amazing story. Because I I think in a way I was like a fish out of water. You know, I in like a lion. I I. I I wasn't even afraid of the things I should have been afraid of, but that's what made it possible. You have so many talents. I mean, just listening to you, you know, management skills, creative skills, writing skills, organizing skills, uh, interpersonal relationship skills. Now we're talking about wine skills. Yeah. You know, you were given the, the gifts that you gave in your personal psyche and who you are. Are touch on so many different parts of the universe. It's really and and the fact that you were able to to understand that and take advantage of those things right. is remarkable. You're comfortable succeeding <laughs> and failing. Well, yeah, <laughs> and I mean, I think that both are important. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Are, are you happy now where you are in your life? I am. I realize that I I was drawn to women with a dark side all the time. 
definitely that's what was going on. And then I'd be surprised when I got stung, you know. Jerry, I feel like I could sit here and talk to you forever. Yeah. I can't believe all the years that you and my husband have been friends we've never met before. I know. So I really want to thank you for coming. Yeah. It's been an absolutely fantastic conversation. Yeah. Seriously. Thank you. Thank you. Next time, Dr. Ava Shamban is best known as the skincare maven from TV's Extreme Makeover and The Doctors. Her journey from top Harvard Medical School grad to trailblazing research scientist leading at the forefront of -of state-of-the-art high-tech dermatological techniques is an inspiration. Dr. Ava lectures internationally, serves as a principal investigator on many FDA trials, and is the author of Heal Your Skin, The Breakthrough Plan for Renewal. She is an assistant clinical professor at the UCLA Geffen School of Medicine and has private practices in Santa Monica and Beverly Hills. She's a frequently quoted health and beauty expert all over the world. So join us when we rewind to the beginning to find out how Dr. Ava does it all on the next Say It Forward. Thanks for listening to Say It Forward. Help us grow by subscribing to our podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes or at www.sayitforwardpodcast.com. Don't forget to rate and review us on the iTunes store or like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. 